If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 19. John 19, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 16 this afternoon. Uh, Last week, we began to look at this section in John's gospel with Jesus before Pilate, as well as Pilate's interactions with uh, the Jewish leaders that were there. And we took our main idea last week from the words of 1 Corinthians 1.25, which say, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. A great statement from Paul, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And as we move into chapter 19 of John's gospel and continue to look at this scene with Pilate, a a similar theme uh, continues. And to that end, we could take that same phrase as our big idea today, or we could take the other words that are a part of 1 Corinthians 1.25 that say the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Maybe that would be a good idea, a good big idea for today. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Everyone around Jesus seems to be trusting their apparent wisdom, but they simply reveal their pride and foolishness. And yet, even in their foolishness, God's wisdom shines forth as he uses their actions to accomplish his plan of salvation. As we think about that, we could also say that these verses are talking about God's sovereignty. His sovereignty over everything, including this specific situation. He's declaring in that that even the malice and injustice and cowardice of humanity can be redeemed by God. Maybe that's a good big idea. Even the malice, injustice, and cowardice of humanity can be redeemed by God. Maybe you hear me struggling to synthesize this passage into one sentence. (laughs) And I wonder if that's because our response to these accounts of the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus should in part be just to step back and just to behold what Christ has done and gone through to purchase our salvation. The deeper that we go into this narrative, the more we are forced to linger over and look into the humiliation and the physical suffering that Christ bore in our place. We're forced to stare at the evil done to Jesus and know that it was for us and that we too would have rejected him in similar ways. Therefore, as we walk through this passage, for the most part, I just want us to linger over these verses and consider what Christ has done for us. We, as we do that, we might note the full, that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, or even that, that the malice, injustice, and cowardice of humanity can be redeemed by God. But ultimately, we're invited to behold our Savior accomplishing our salvation. Maybe that's it. Behold our Savior accomplishing our salvation. Well, let's read the passage before I give you a fourth big idea. (laughs) John 19, beginning in verse one, you'll remember that the crowd has just cried out for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. John 19, beginning in verse one, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out, against them, went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you 
that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. In our criminal justice system, which certainly has its flaws, When someone is pronounced guilty, though, they are released from custody or released from the charges that were against them. A a judge or a a jury uh, has said that they have not done what they are accused of doing. Therefore, they cannot be rightly held. That makes sense in our minds. At the end of chapter 18, Pilate made it clear that he did not find any guilt in Jesus. He had questioned him regarding the charges of setting himself up as a king, and he found that he had broken no law. But for some reason, after this declaration of not guilty, he didn't simply release Jesus. This could have had something to do with the strained history that Pilate had with the Jewish people there in Judea where he was the the governor. He'd already had a few run-ins with them uh, when he didn't do what they asked him to do or when he had purposely provoked them in some way. We can even sort of sense this tension in the conversations between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, can't we? And so despite his not guilty verdict, he can't just ignore or dismiss their request or else he's risking an outright revolt from them. And if word gets back to Caesar, this could, this could be the last straw for Pilate. He might lose his position as governor there in Judea. This political maneuvering could be why we see Pilate trying to get out of condemning an innocent man on the one hand, while also appeasing a crowd that wants to see him killed on the other hand. His first try was in chapter 18. His first try was this annual Passover prisoner release. He tried to use that to free Jesus, but then the crowd said that they wanted Barabbas instead of Jesus. 
his second attempt to appease the Jewish leaders and to get out of killing a man that he declared as innocent is described here in verses 1 to 8. Let's simply title this section, verses 1 to 8, Behold the Man. Verses 1 to 8, Behold the Man. We're told in, in verse 1 that Pilate flogged Jesus. He beat him. Of course, Pilate was not the one who did the flogging. It was his soldiers, and yet it was ordered by Pilate, and he was responsible for it. When we think about this flogging uh, of Jesus that's associated with the crucifixion, we usually envision the more brutal beating that Mark talks about. Uh, This vicious act, as some of you have probably heard said, was done prior to the crucifixion. It was done with a whip that would have contained bits of glass or metal or even bone, and it was so violent that sometimes the victim did not survive that flogging before being crucified. And yet Pilate has not yet agreed to crucify Jesus. And so this would seem to be some sort of lesser flogging. Uh, Luke seems to reference this scene. This is what it says in Luke 23, verses 13 to 16. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Verse 16, I will therefore punish and release him, which is probably what's happening here. This punishment was accompanied by mockery, the mockery of Jesus as the king of the Jews. We're told that the soldiers made a crown of thorns that they put on Jesus's head. It was likely made of thorns of the date palm. We're not talking small thorns, but thorns that could be up to 12 inches in length. They also wrapped him in some sort of purple garment. And then they bowed to him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. But with each of their statements, they accompanied their words with slaps and with punches. Pilate had had given Jesus into these men's hands and they made this game out of humiliating him and, and hurting him. As I thought about them, they're just common bullies, aren't they? They're just bullies with no one to stop them. Surely some of their mockery was not just for Jesus, but for the Jewish people. Uh, In a sense, they were taking out their frustrations with the Jewish people on Jesus, the king of the Jews. Being a soldier in Judea was not easy. There was animosity between the Jews and the Romans. And so yet again, we find that Jesus is the substitute for sinners. Here, Jesus is taking the punishment that was intended for those at that very moment who were his enemies. The beating and the mockery were what Pilate was willing to do to a man who was causing trouble in Jerusalem. And his hope was that that would be enough. So he brought him out to the crowd after he had punished him and to show that he had done something. I've I've punished Jesus. But it was clear that he, he made it clear that he found no guilt in him. Again, what a conflicted man. He's not guilty, so I will beat him. As Jesus emerges beaten and bloody in this mock garb of a king, Pilate announces, behold the man. It has the force of, this is him. This silent, 
beaten, weak man is the one that you want me to crucify. This is the guy that you claim is trying to overthrow Rome. Maybe Pilate even was trying to garner some sympathy for Jesus so that they would release him. But yet again, he miscalculates. And the chief priests and the officers, they still cry out, crucify him. It's important to note that it's the Jewish leaders who are the ones that are leading these cries for crucifixion. Uh, who knows what the common people were thinking or even what they were aware of at this moment, but we know that the leaders are the ones that are leading this, um, these cries. Pilate, at this point, seems to be a bit exasperated. This is in verse 6. and He tells the Jews, you crucify him. You guys do it. I don't find anything, any guilt in him. I'm not going to crucify him. And in his refusal to do what they asked, he forced the Jews to reveal the real, the real reason that they wanted to kill Jesus. They, they had tried to make it primarily about Jesus breaking, breaking Roman laws about rebellion or, or sedition. But, but now they told Pilate that it's because Jesus had broken their law regarding blasphemy. They're probably thinking of Leviticus 24.16. It says... Sorry about this. I'm not sure what's going on. It says in Leviticus 24:16, "Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death." So they said to Pilate, "This man claimed to be God, and that kind of blasphemy requires death according to our law, and you are our leader, and therefore you must enforce our law. This thought, the thought that Jesus claimed to be God, then frightens Pilate. He gets scared. I misspoke last week. I said that a claim for someone to be God would not have moved Pilate. That's incorrect. It obviously did move Pilate. His fear probably found some roots in, in maybe some superstitious beliefs that he had. It may also have to do with something with the dreams that his wife was having that the other gospel writers tell us about. She sent word to her husband that she had had dreams and said, have nothing to do with that innocent man. That would scare you, wouldn't it? And beyond his own superstitions and the pleadings of his wife, we can't doubt that, that Pilate was affected by Jesus himself. Remember, there had been people that were sent to arrest Jesus, and they came back and said, no one ever spoke like this man. And, and Pilate had to experience that in some way. So here in verses 1 to 8, we behold the man, we see him. We see him beaten, we see him mocked, we see him emerge from Pilate's quarters in weakness. We see him suffering physically and emotionally, and surely his whole soul was in anguish. And as we look at the scene, we might wonder if the forces of evil really are in control. And yet in verses 9 to 16, we are told to behold the king. So we go from behold the man to behold the king in verses 9 to 16. Remember, this whole scene is punctuated by Pilate uh, going out and going back in and going out and coming back in because the Jews would not enter into his quarters and defile themselves. And here Pilate goes back inside for yet another conversation with Jesus. And this time he begins with this question, where are you from? <laughs> where are you from? That could be a really strange question, apart from the fact that that question has been raised over and over again in John's gospel, hasn't it? Where are you from? The Pharisees have asked Jesus constantly about his origins, and what has Jesus told them? I come from the Father. 
I come from heaven. That's where I'm from. But when Pilate asks Jesus, what does he say? Nothing. He remains completely silent. Maybe he knows that it doesn't matter what he says. It's not going to change the inevitable outcome. Maybe his silence is a show of control, a show of strength. Maybe he has the words of Isaiah 53, 7 in his mind. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But Pilate doesn't see his silence as strength. He sees it as stupidity. Why is Jesus not pleading with Pilate for his life? Why is he not offering up every argument that he can come up with for why he should not be crucified. And so Pilate says, don't you understand what's going on here? Don't you understand that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? That's a claim to power for sure, but Pilate may also be stating the weight that he feels, that it's up to him whether this man will live or die. And he's doing everything he can to keep him alive while also trying to placate the Jews. Pilate says, don't you realize the burden that I'm bearing right now? Help me out. But just as Pilate couldn't understand the kind of kingdom that Jesus was a king over, so too he didn't understand the way that power works. And so Jesus boldly, can you imagine saying this to the man who at that moment seems to hold your life in his hands? Jesus says to him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given from above. Hmm. Pilate while responsible for his actions, was also not acting outside of God's sovereign control. And he was not acting outside of the other forces around him, namely these Jewish authorities. So Jesus says, God's in control of this whole situation, and you are guilty of acting unjustly. But you're not as guilty as the people that handed you over to me, or handed me over to you. Now, why is that? Why is Pilate not as guilty as, say, Judas or Caiaphas? Well, maybe because Pilate wouldn't be in this situation apart from the actions of men like Judas and Caiaphas. Those men who had had heard Jesus, who had seen the miracles more than Pilate ever did, still took the initiative to have Jesus arrested and killed. Pilate, Pilate's just passive. Passive, Pilate is just spineless. These guys, their guilt is actively pursuing the crucifixion of God's son despite seeing his glory, despite hearing his words of life. Peter sums it up in Acts 22, Acts 2, 22 to 23, when he says to the Jewish people gathered around him, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Hmm. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are held in tension throughout the scriptures and throughout life as they are here in the trial of Jesus. Pilate and the Jewish leaders were guilty, but God was in control. That's hard to fully understand, but it gives us great confidence, doesn't it? It gives us great hope. There is no authority given in this world apart from God's hand. He is the one who gives all people authority. 
And even if we stand before corrupt courts, even if we stand before people who are bent on doing us wrong, even if we're put into the hands of unrighteous people, we can know that God is sovereign over all, and they would have no authority apart from him. So we can stand like Jesus, trusting our Father, speaking when we need to, even being silent when we feel like that's the right move, ever entrusting our souls to the one who does all things well. No human authority ultimately reigns over the child of the king. Well, at this response in verse 12, uh, we find that Pilate did everything he could to release Jesus. He's, he doesn't want anything to do with this guy anymore. He finds no guilt in him. He's ready to release him. But the Jewish leaders had one more ace up their sleeve. And so when it, looks like Jesus, well, like, when it looked like Pilate was going to set Jesus free, they said, if you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar's. You are showing your disloyalty to Rome because this man says he is a king and someone who says he is a king is obviously setting himself up against Caesar. And in the background, they're kind of saying, and if you do that, we're going to tell him. We're going to tell him exactly what you did. And that was it. Whatever conscience Pilate had at that moment buckled under the weight of his desire to keep his position and to keep the peace. So the judgment seat is brought out. Uh, Jesus is brought out. And this time he's brought out with different words. Not behold the man, but the announcement, behold your king. I'm sure Pilate had some hint of mockery in that announcement. And yet he, like the soldiers in verse 2, unknowingly were speaking the truth. And to that announcement, the crowd says, away with him. Get him out of our sight. Crucify him. And when Pilate said, do you want me to crucify your king? They give this chilling reply. The chief priests say, we have no king but Caesar. How far they've gone. And hearing that, we're taken back to the book of Samuel when the Israelites asked for a king like all the other nations had. you remember that? We want a king like all the other nations, God. And Samuel, the judge of Israel at the time, resisted that request. But God then told him to give them what they wanted. Why? 1 Samuel 8, 7 says this, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And it happens again right here. Those Jesus had come to save rejected him for the final time, choosing Caesar over Christ. And Pilate, while he tried to wash his hands of this situation figuratively and literally, forfeited justice and he condemned Jesus to death. That's the scene. And I think as we, we look at it, we behold what Christ did to save us. But there's also much to learn. And I think we find our points of application from this passage in the form of warnings. So let me give you three warnings. The first is this, beware of the allure of earthly power. Beware of the, the allure, the temptation to earthly power. And as I bring out that warning, I have in mind those Jewish leaders and that final cry, we have no king but Caesar. Why would they say that? 
Well, because Caesar could get them what they wanted. Caesar had the power that they needed. Because whether they truly believed it or not, saying those words gave them access to the power that they craved, a power to kill. In contrast to Caesar, the symbol of earthly power, behold the man, Christ Jesus. He came in weakness. He submitted to the will of his father all the way to the point of death. He was not attractive to us. He did not stand head and shoulders above the crowd like King Saul. No, he was led out before us in weakness. And as Isaiah says, we hide, as it were, our faces from him. So behold the man, but also behold the king. Not an earthly king, but a heavenly one. Not one who invites us to win through power, but one who invites us to lose through weakness and then to rise again. And as we behold Jesus by God's grace, we might have eyes to see the man, Christ Jesus, as the man who took on weakness in our place. We might see him as the king who shows us what true greatness is. In our sinful hearts, though, we behold Jesus, the man, we behold Jesus, the king, and we say, away with him. We're repulsed by his weakness, and we fail to see the greatness of his kingdom in our flesh. We, fail, we, we, we feel and we're told that we should follow people who use every bit of their power to get what we want. Everyone wants to follow a winner, right? Why would, why would we follow a man condemned to die who then doesn't even open his mouth to defend himself? That's crazy. Singer-songwriter John Guerra has a song called Citizens, and in it he describes political powers throughout the ages up to this present age and how even the people who claim to be God's children can sometimes be duped by a lust for power. I couldn't help but thinking of these words as I read this passage. He writes, There is a wolf who is ranting. All of the sheep they are clapping, promising power and protection, claiming the Christ who was killed. Killed by a common consensus, everyone's screaming Barabbas, trading their God for a hero, forfeiting heaven for Rome. We must be aware of this. The allure of power in this world to get what we want is strong and tempting. If we don't watch out, we we might find ourselves in the midst of a crowd that stands against everything that our Savior stood for. A crowd that even stands against our Savior himself. We, we might find ourselves screaming things in anger that we never thought we would scream. We might find ourselves professing allegiance to an earthly power and casting Jesus to the side. We must beware of the allure of earthly power. It is strong and instead, we need to behold the man who in weakness is exalted. We need to behold the king whose heavenly kingdom is eternal and founded on self-sacrificing love. That's the king we follow. That's the kind of power that we are about, the power that lays down its life for the good of others. Notice the second warning, somewhat related. Beware the dark consequences of forfeiting your integrity. Beware the dark consequences of forfeiting your integrity. This is related. We see this in the Jewish leaders, but I think we also see it in Pilate. 
Pilate was a, a tortured man, wasn't he? He's fighting his conscience. He's fighting his desire for peace or power or position or all of the above. Uh, if, if he was a, a man of conviction, he would have set Jesus free though, right? If he served the true God rather than God, the God of his own pride, he would have upheld justice. But instead, he sold his integrity for some false form of peace. So what about us? Are, are we those who seek to be truthful and honest in all circumstances? Or do we allow, righteous, or do we allow righteousness and justice to, to mark everything that we do, big and small? Or do we justify white lies and half-truths? Do we excuse cheating on a test or on homework? Because, you know, it's just homework. Do we excuse misrepresenting facts on our taxes? Do we just say small discrepancies at work, maybe on my time clock, it's not a big deal. We need to be aware of small steps into compromise because all the small steps make the bigger ones a lot easier to take. Rather, we should be marked by uncompromising integrity in every area of our lives so that when the big questions come, we know where we stand. When I think about integrity, the name Eric Little comes to my mind. His story is told in the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, Eric Little was the son of missionaries in China who later became a missionary himself, but he was also a very talented runner, so talented that he made it to the 1924 Olympics in Paris. However, as he was getting ready for the Olympics, he was told that his normal race, the 400 meters or the 100 meters, was scheduled for a Sunday and that he would have to participate in that race on the Lord's Day, which went against his convictions. And he said he wouldn't do it, and no one could sway him from, uh, from that conviction. So they offered for him to run a different race. It was a distance that he wasn't used to, but he accepted and won the gold medal. After that, he said, it has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I've been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. <laughs> his integrity stood firm. Why? Because his faith was in the immovable and ever-truthful God. Later, Little would write this. Every Christian should live a God-guided life. If you are not guided by God, you will be guided by someone or something else. Pilate was guided by many things, wasn't he? And his, his lack of integrity means that he stands in history as the man who condemned the innocent son of God to death by crucifixion. Now, we may not face such an ignoble end, but we should learn from him that selling our integrity for money or for power or for a grade or for some other earthly treasure is a dangerous business. And as children of God, we, we who represent Christ are called to be people of truth, people of justice, people of righteousness, no matter what the consequences for that might be. We need to beware the dangerous consequences of selling our integrity. Finally, as we close, Pilate warns us to beware of thinking that you can be neutral on Jesus. Beware of thinking that you can be neutral on Jesus. Isn't that what Pilate wanted to do? He just wanted to ride the fence as long as he could. 
And he kept trying. He just didn't want to say yes or no to Jesus. But at every turn, he was forced to decide, is this man the son of God? Is this man the king of heaven? Or do I reject him as a man of no consequence? This is the question that the whole world faces, isn't it? Not just the whole world faces, it's the question that everyone in this room faces. You say, I'll, I'll decide some other time. Can I ride this fence a little bit longer about Jesus? And yet to postpone the decision is to reject him. It's to risk your eternal soul. John wrote this gospel, why? So that we would believe in Jesus and find life in him. Pilate chose to reject Jesus, and therefore he chose eternal death. But to all who receive Jesus, he gives the right to become children of God. To everyone who will admit their sin and trust that Jesus went through all that we are reading about for us, we are given eternal life. If you've never done that, then I would plead with you to find life in Jesus. Jesus, the one who suffered for us. Jesus, the king who reigns eternal over death and hell. And if you have trusted in Christ, then let's never be like Pilate. Let's never remain neutral on Jesus because of the fear of others or the fear of the consequences that might come from standing firm for him. Let's stand firm for Christ, whatever the consequences may be. Practically, what does that mean? Well, it could mean you need to follow Christ in baptism. You need to take the first step of obedience to him, declaring publicly that you're a follower of King Jesus. It may mean witnessing to your friends and neighbors and coworkers about the power of the gospel, no matter what that means for your reputation or for uh, your job or the consequences that could come. It, it may mean standing against injustice in all of its forms. Whatever it looks like, may we never allow our commitment to Christ to be a thing that, that wavers or that changes with the climate around us. May our commitment to Christ not be swayed by who is there or by what the consequences for standing for him could be. Let us be those who in his strength and for his glory stand firm as followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the true son of man, Jesus, the son of God who saved us and to whose kingdom we belong to. That's our identity. We are children of the king. Let us stand firm on that and never try to be neutral on Jesus, but shout it from the mountaintops that we belong to him. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word, and then I will close this in prayer. Father, we sing bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned, he stood. Lord, thank you that you've given us your word so that we can pause and think about that reality to realize where Christ stood and what he went through for us. Lord, we deserve to be in that judgment hall and There'd be no question about our guilt. 
There'd be no debate. It would be clear. So thank you that you sent Christ to be the sinless sacrifice for us, that he was the Lamb of God without blemish who could die in our place. Well, thank you for um, the opportunity to, to see him and to, to know him. Lord, help us to never think that we should even try to be neutral about how Jesus is, about who Jesus is, but that we would be those who are ready to lay down our lives for Christ and to proclaim the goodness of who he is and what he's done for us. Father, make us people of integrity. Make us people who, who love your kingdom and your glory more than anything else. Do it all through the power of your spirit, Father. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.